and welcome to episode 16 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, coming to you from Columbus, Ohio. And with this episode, we open the book on chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 is going to be a pretty daunting chapter. We are going to cover the first half or so of Alfred Hitchcock's career, basically up through 1950. Now, this is going to be a long chapter because there's just a lot when it comes to Alfred Hitchcock. There are a lot of films that I want to cover. There's a lot of history and tidbits, and we know a lot about the man. So it's really important that we stretch this out and do it right, if you're going to do it at all. As far as the films are concerned, we're going to be focusing on thrillers and, you know, suspense, horror-type films. There aren't a lot of horror films, really, with Hitchcock early on. But I will be covering pretty much exclusively thrillers. So none of his other genres are really going to be represented in a deep dive anyway. We'll talk about them, and there might be facts and stuff that we go through with those. We can see as we're going through how we're going to talk about those. So this first episode is going to be covering up to about 1929, uh, somewhere in there. So I want to go ahead and get started and dive into this. Let's go ahead and set this up. Alfred was born on August 13th, 1989, and he was born in the flat above his parents' grocery shop at 517 High Road in Leightonstone on the outskirts of East London that was then part of Essex. His dad, William, was a greengrocer and later a fishmonger. He remembers him going to work in a suit and a starched shirt, and Alfred would really carry this forward in his own style later on in life. And then his mother Emma was a housewife. He was told that he never cried as a child. Now Alfred had two siblings, but for all intents and purposes they weren't a major part of his life. He didn't really like to recall or tell stories about his childhood, but he does like to tell the story of how when he committed a crime and it was like a small misdemeanor type level crime, his father actually persuaded the police to lock him up in the cell for a couple of minutes. He tells this story to explain how he came to fear the police and why the themes of guilt and punishment run through his films. Another interesting fact about Alfred as a child is that he was obsessed with trains and he would chart out all of the train schedules in his younger years. By the age of eight, he had already traveled every route on the trains of the London General Omnibus Company. And it's said that he knew every single stop of the Orient Express. He had a typical Orthodox Catholic education growing up. At 10, he attended the St. Ignatius School, which was a strict Jesuit school. He claimed that from the Jesuits, he learned the virtues of order, control, and precision. It was also said that he absorbed knowledge very easily. As I continue to go through this, I'm going to kind of jump back and forth at some points because there are some some facts and quotes and things like that that are in that I want to introduce earlier on to kind of tie back into his childhood, but it won't necessarily always be in order. One example of these is Alfred was always seen as this very lonely child. 
And later on, one journalist had described him when he was sitting on the set alone, um, that he described that he had the look of a fat boy who has just ran away from his cruel contemporaries. So that kind of gives you a look into the psyche of Alfred Hitchcock. And he so much hated, you know, growing up in other children that he has had this dislike of small boys. And again, that was most likely a holdover from how he was treated by them growing up. The famous story goes that he once scared child actor Bill Mummy when he bent down to him and whispered, if you don't stop moving about, I'm going to get a nail and nail your feet to the mark and the blood will come pouring out like milk. So maybe not such a pleasant man, maybe not so good with children, but you kind of get the picture of who Alfred was. And to piggyback off that, he was also a huge watcher of people. He would sit quietly and observe his family at family gatherings, as well as the other kids at the playground. This probably led to the themes of voyeurism that were incorporated into his films later on. Another thing he loved was the cinema. and. Growing up, he really came of age at the same time as the cinema did. He also lived in the perfect place for it. He grew up in Walthamstow. At the time, Walthamstow was considered the Hollywood of London, and he would frequent the cinemas in that area. Another obsession of Hitchcock's were interest in, you know, murder trials, and more specifically, he was interested in the ones involving murdered women. He collected a library of crime novels along with ones on criminal cases as well. He even used the case of John Christie as the inspiration for the movie Frenzy. So enough of the little background stories and traits and characteristics of Alfred. Let's get into a little more of his history. So, he trained to be an engineer and was able to get his first job as a technical estimator. Now, unfortunately, his father would pass away from emphysema a month after he started working there, and his oldest brother would take over the shop. Also, in 1915, the Zeppelin bombings began near the area that he lived in, and they also started seeing submarines in the surrounding areas. This, of course, was part of World War One and the Germans and their attacks on Britain. His home would come under fire several times, and World War I would have an impact on Hitchcock as well. I can only imagine how those turbulent times would have affected him or anyone, really. I mean, when you're living through bombings and everything else, it's not easy. It's not easy to cope with when you're constantly having to take shelter and everything like that. So, at 16, he became enamored with author Edgar Allan Poe, and he felt pity for him because, despite all of his talent, he was always unhappy. He began to dive deep into Poe's short stories, and later in life he compares what he put in his films to what Poe put in his stories. That's probably a driving influence on Hitch throughout his career. At 17, he enlisted in a cadet regiment of the Royal Engineers. Um, ultimately never amounted to anything, but... Hitchcock should be commended for showing his you know, patriotism as the time and bravely volunteering. In 1917, he was actually eligible to be called up for service, but was excused under a C3 classification, 
that was a general blanket exception for any medical or physical reason. So due to his like health of the time, or maybe the status of his physical condition, he couldn't even serve actively. But he could still be called to duty as a cook or any other non-combat personnel, but the war was ending, meaning he would be relieved of any actual service. He would later enroll in night art classes at Goldsmith College, where he would refine his drawing skills. And this will come into play later in the episode and really give a good background, give him a good background to where he can do certain things, but we'll get into that. Due to his art classes, his employer moved him from the sales department to the marketing department, having him illustrating and editing brochures. This would ultimately lead to him founding the Henley Telegraph at the company, and this was a newspaper of sorts that would circulate around the company. He would also include some short stories of his in the issues. Now, he was never fully committed to Henley's and lost interest in the advertising. He always kept an eye on the film trade magazines and noticed famous players Lasky had set up a studio in England and were asking for captioneers for their silent films. Their first film was The Sorrows of Satan, and he created designs and captions for it. Unfortunately, when he went to submit it, he found out that they decided to move on from this film to focus on two others. And this will tell you the work ethic of young Alfred here, is it only took him a couple of days to come up with captions for these new films, and he trudged back to the studio. His speed and talent impressed them, and he actually began moonlighting in a part-time role for the studio while working at Henley's. By April of 1921, he actually became a full-time employee of Famous Players Lasky and left Henley's. His first job was to design the title cards for the films. He would have to coordinate with the script writers, who were mostly women at the time, and while working with them, he learned how to write screenplays. Some of the films he worked on during this early period were The Mystery Road and Dangerous Lies. Don't ask me about either of those, I don't know anything about them, as I probably won't know much about the earlier films that he did himself either. So, He also met Alma Revel here, and Alma would later become his wife. So that's very important. You know, you never know how the pieces are going to fall in line, but he worked at Famous Players Lasky and would meet his future wife through there. We'll get into much more detail into Alma later on. But for now, you know, she was already well-versed in film production, having served in the cutting room department of a studio at 16 years old. She was so good at what she did that she eventually was promoted to studio floor director and then again to second assistant director. So she's on the rise um, when Alfred meets her for the first time. She joined Famous Players Lasky in 1921, the same year as Hitchcock did. At first, he showed no interest in Revel, or for that matter, any member of the opposite sex, as he was focused only on film. Now, Famous Players Lasky wouldn't last very long, as, a, as the cooperation between the English and Americans wasn't working as intended. Famous Players Lasky was kind of a branch making American-type films in England and had the cooperation of studios in America. So, to give that background, it just wasn't working anymore as they liked it to be. They weren't getting the successes that they wanted. Their films weren't resonating with British audiences mainly in the same way as you know true American-made films were. 
Islington Studio, which is where famous players Lasky had set up shop, continued as a rental studio, and over the next couple years, Hitchcock would stay on. He would actually write a script that never came to fruition there for a movie titled Goodnight Nurse. Um, In late 1922, he borrowed money from an uncle to finance his own independent film titled Mrs. Peabody, but he had to close down production after only shooting a couple of reels as he ran out of money. However, it was about to be Alfred's time as he was about to get an opportunity that would set him on the path to his famous directorial future. So in early 1923, an actor named Seymour Hicks linked up with an independent director to remake the comedy Always Tell Your Wife. The director fell ill, and Hicks scrambled to find someone to replace him. He looked to Hitchcock, who he found enthusiastic and eager. Only one reel still remains of that film today, so that is almost completely lost. Later in that year, Hitchcock would meet someone else who would be very important to him in Michael Balkan. And Balkan came in with some other independent filmmakers to Islington Studio. And Hitchcock was brought on as both the screenwriter and art director for the first film at the studio. And that film would be Woman to Woman. It's said that Hitchcock's signature phrase at the time was, I'll do it. And he would pretty much do about anything, take on any responsibility, any chance he could get to claw and scrape his way into the industry. Balkan really admired this quality in him, and I think that's a big reason why Balkan had so much confidence in him and would help to push him later on. Hitch contacted Alma regarding a position on the film. He was an assistant director and asked her to sign on as the cutter. A funny thing about that is Hitch had not directly contacted Alma before, and that was because she was of a higher position than him. And in those times in England, and I'm sure a lot of places in the world, if a woman was of a higher position than you, you weren't going to openly approach her. So he waited until he was assistant director to do that. Woman to Woman would release in spring of 1923, and was a success in England, Germany, and the United States. The next year, Balkan would go on to buy Islington Studio from Paramount. This would be Hitchcock's permanent setup for at least a few more years here. Hitchcock was an assistant director on another pair of now-forgotten films made by the crew at Islington. The filmmakers would take up the moniker of Gainsborough Pictures, and begin looking for funding. They entered a co-production with a prominent German film company. Under this newfound partnership with this German film company, they would complete two films, and they would both star American actress Jane Novak. During this time that they were shooting in Germany, on an adjoining set, F.W. Murnau was filming The Last Laugh. It's said that he took Alfred under his wing, and later Hitchcock would state, From Murnau, I learned how to tell a story without words. Renault also taught him you don't need to create an entire mansion or a cathedral or any kind of big set in its entirety when featuring one like that in your film. Instead, all you need to do is create a door and a marble pillar, and that'll suffice as the audience's imagination will do the rest. What you see on the set doesn't matter. It's all about what the audience will see on the screen. 
It was said that the German cinema unlocked the imagination in Hitchcock's mind. He also clung to the fact that in German filmmaking, it was the director who was the most important figure in a production. And that might sound a little pompous for sure um, to cling on to that. And really, I wouldn't say that early on because because from all accounts, he was a nervous man. He was kind of a nervous wreck all the time. But he did have confidence in himself to an extent. And we'll get into that surely as we keep going on. But anyway, just a little aside there. Even though Hitchcock was courting Alma at the time, they almost exclusively talked about film and the films that they were making. Alma always seemed to have a better grasp on the technical aspect of filmmaking, and it's said that Hitchcock would often defer to her in those matters. If she didn't think something was effective or wasn't working, he kind of dropped it and lost interest in it and would move on. Hitch and Rebel spent a lot of time covering for the affair of the director Graham Cutts. And Graham Cutts was part of this group at, you know, Gainsborough Pictures. He was part of that original group that came in and was the director originally. Again, he was having an affair. Alfred and Alma were trying to cover it up and keep it away from his wife. He would eventually run away with his Estonian mistress, though. And Hitchcock saw this as a positive as he viewed Cutts as a substandard film director. Balkan would come in and offer Hitchcock the opportunity to be the solo director on a film, and he happily accepted. He and Almer returned to Germany for another co-production in the spring of 25, and it was titled The Pleasure Garden and would be Hitchcock's directorial debut. Unfortunately, the film was plagued by financial problems, and the two Hollywood stars in the film had very expensive taste. He was also nervous and afraid to give star Virginia Valley direction. He always had Alma by his side when he was talking to her and would frequently ask Alma if that was all right of what he was saying to her or what he was going to say to her. So he was, in a sense, using Alma as a buffer to make sure he didn't do anything inappropriate, I believe. But he would also ask to borrow money from Valley several times as he was constantly down to his last dollar. So they must have had at least some kind of relationship outside of the set and filming. And, to be clear, not a romantical relationship, but some kind of rapport at least. I can't imagine you asking to borrow money from, you know, an actress if you don't have some kind of connection there or some kind of, you know, talking and getting along with that person. But anyway... The film was completed in August. Now, I haven't watched this as I haven't really watched many of his silent films, but it's said to contain aspects Hitchcock would become known for, such as suspense, voyeurism, and violence towards women. The cutting and camera techniques used in the film were still considered experimental by many in London, and of course he would get these techniques from Germany, who were kind of at the cutting edge of the silent film. Balkan loved the finished film because it had an American look and was far better than its English counterparts. The press also loved it and referred to him as the young man with the mastermind. Now, he couldn't just keep going on with just him and Alma, unfortunately, so he brought someone else into his inner circle, and that would be Elliot Stannard. And Stannard was an experienced screenwriter at the time, and he would end up going on to write eight of Hitchcock's nine silent films. Hitchcock wished to create a team, 
in which he could rely on. This method would follow him all throughout his career. In November of 1925, the team would return to make the Mountain Eagle. They shot this in the Alps, and it's said that Hitchcock was plagued by a bout of alpine sickness and had the urge to shout, let me speak English to someone. This is kind of funny. I mean, you could see where you know, you're working with actors from all different areas in Europe and everything else, and you might go a little crazy. I can't imagine having people speaking all different languages. You know, I think I've talked about that before. It just seems like it would be so much chaos going on. But anyway, these were silent films, so there wasn't really any talking, so maybe not too bad, but how do you direct someone that you can't even speak their language or know their language? But Anyway, that's one of the many challenges of filmmaking. Only a few stills remain of this film, and it's considered to be one of the most desired lost films in the world. Um, the film didn't fare well with critics, though, and it's said that Hitch himself claimed that he was glad it was lost. On Christmas Eve, they took a ship back to England, and while Alma was in her room suffering from seasickness, Hitchcock knocked on the door and asked Alma to marry him. According to Hitchcock's daughter, who had been told the story, Alma was too sick to get out of bed, and groaned, nodded, and then burped. You know, that's just... It's so romantic. That's just the picture of romance right there. <laughs> and you can see... You can see... It's easy to see someone who's shy and nervous and all this stuff and not really into making big grand gestures to go into their room on a ship back to England while she's seasick and ask her to marry him. But either way, it was done. They were engaged. Hitchcock would later state falsely that he married her because she asked him to, which don't know why you would lie about that, <laughs> which seems like Hitchcock may be trying to save face or something. I don't know. I don't know about that. But anyway, on December 2nd, 1926, so about a year later, the two were wed. It is said that they were like working partners, and Alma, who was never very ambitious, herself channeled all of her aspirations through Alfred and his success. She was known to be able to spot amateurs and swindlers from a mile away and always gave Alfred opinions on his films and people within the industry. He trusted her implicitly in this, and it's good that Alma was there. So a couple key things there. One is, yes, they were much more like business partners than they ever were a married couple from all, you know, all the sources we have. But the other thing is, it seemed like Hitchcock could be easily manipulated or fooled, so it was good that Alma was there to kind of take away the shysters or anyone trying to pull a fast one over on Alfred. Uh, Hitchcock, going along with one of my statements a minute ago, Hitchcock claimed their marriage was a sexless one, and by all accounts, there's no you know, reason for people to doubt this. It seems to line up with everything else. While Hitchcock was still in Germany before they came back over, the next film to be directed by him was announced. Um, it would be his first breakout hit. It was titled The Lodger, a story of the London Fog, and would be based on the infamous serial killer Jack the Ripper. The Lodger would be based on both the novel, titled The Lodger by author Marie Belloc Lowndes, and the play Who Is He? which was co-written by Belloc Lowndes as well. The film had a budget of around £12,000, 
or if you want to do that for inflation, around 802,000 pounds, or a little over a million US dollars today. So that seems like a pretty decent sized budget. The studio had a lot of influence on the final product, as they demanded the script be changed due to them not liking the ending. You can really see how the changes here might drastically alter the feel of the film. I'm not going to go into specifics, because I'm not going to spoil this film, or any film, unless, you know, I give warning. But I like the film's ending, but it would have been pretty daring at the time to go the way Hitchcock wanted it to. I'll just say that. In early 1926, Stannard began working on the script, and Hitchcock started storyboarding the film. Or, you know, he was drawing pictures to set up how the scenes would play out. He liked to conceive his films through the visuals and used art as inspiration. And that plays back into his, you know, he took those art school classes. And he would always conceive his films that way, is draw up some storyboards and basically draw these little frame-by-frame pictures and then show it to Stannard, and then Stannard would work with that and try to write the film. In February, Ivor Novello was announced as the star. He was coming from a completely different background, so work would need to be done to make him a convincing murder suspect. From what I understand, Novello was a matinee idol, and people loved him, and it's kind of going to be a big step in his career to change and go into this kind of direction. Filming began on February 25th of 1926. Hitchcock, like I said earlier, was obsessed with the German style of filmmaking and tried to keep all of his scenes to a length of three minutes or less. So no lingering, no staying in one spot for too long. However, actress June Tripp recalled, Fresh from Berlin, Hitch was so imbued with the value of unusual camera angles and lighting effects with which to create and sustain dramatic suspense that often a scene which would not run for more than three minutes on the screen would take an entire morning to shoot. We've heard of this several times throughout the years. Stanley Kubrick comes to mind. People that are so detailed-oriented and so focused on getting something exactly the way they want it, that they just shoot it over and over again, and it seems like Hitchcock was no different. Hitchcock would later refer to this film as my first picture, or the first real Hitchcock film. Now, our old pal Graham Cutts was still hanging around, and was still upset over Hitchcock's quick ascent through the company. He also allied with C.M. Wolfe, who was the chairman of the distribution company that worked with Gainsborough. They believed Hitchcock's experimental techniques would confuse and alienate British audiences. These two would go on to essentially be the, uh, you know, the Dick Dastardly and Muttley of the of Hitchcock's life. They were there trying to foil his success. So, Alfred and Alma decided not to attend the screening as they feared the reception they would receive. Instead, they decided to go and walk along the streets of London for an hour and a half and prayed. Sadly, when they returned, they were told the film was too artsy and needed to be shelved. In steps Michael Balkan to try and salvage this, because he's desperately trying to see a return on his investment, and he called in Ivor Montague. And Ivor Montague was well known for his re-editing and retranslating films, and he did this a lot for foreign films coming over to England. 
he was tasked to reform the film to a watchable state. That, I mean, you could imagine, maybe, especially for the time, you think of any of these kind of auteurs that get into some weirder or cutting-edge techniques. Think of, like, a David Lynch, and David Lynch isn't actually watchable or easy to watch sometimes. It's not an easy watch. <laughs> so that's, I could see where Hitchcock might need a little bit of a, of a push or some reframing. But let's see, let's see what happens. Let's jump back in. Montague thought the film was great and only really wanted to shorten some scenes and reduce the amount of title cards. To this effect, the amount of title cards was cut from 300, which is insane, to 80 to give the film a better flow. Watching the film, it's easy to see where a lot of these cards would have been cut out. There are several scenes where you think they're going to throw up a title card because people are talking, and they just don't. So there are tons of places where you can spot that if you go back and watch this movie. Other than that, he kept the film almost the same as Hitchcock had originally assembled it. The new film was ready by July, and the screening would take place in September. And the film would actually be widely released in the UK the next year, in February 14th of 1927, so almost a complete year after they started filming. So here's where I want to get into the first movie that I want to talk about in depth for this episode. And I plan on talking about two films an episode, at least two films an episode. We'll see how everything goes. But there's going to be at least a couple of films I want to spotlight on each episode. And this is the first. So let me go ahead and set this up a little. So once again, The Lodger was released in 1927. It has a runtime of just over an hour and a half at 91 minutes. And the synopsis reads, London, a mysterious serial killer brutally murders young blonde women by stalking them in the night fog. One foggy, sinister night, a young man who claims his name is Jonathan Drew arrives at the guest house run by the Bunting family and rents a room. Uh, the only problem I have with that synopsis is it does make this feel like it is going to be a Jack the Ripper type horror movie. And why it might have been a horror movie for the time I don't necessarily think that. I think really today it could be viewed as a drama thriller type film. But I digress. This movie follows a couple of different storylines. I'm not going to get deep into spoilers on this, like I said. But first you have the police trying to catch the murderer known as the Avenger. And we get a little look at behind the scenes of the search. Because one of our characters that we're following is tasked with investigating this. Again, the Avenger is someone who's going out and murdering blonde women on, I believe it's Tuesday nights. We also get the view of Daisy, who is the daughter of the Buntings who own the room for rent, and the lodger is living with them. So we get a couple of different views here. You get the police view, you get the view from Daisy, and you get the view from the lodger, as far as our focal points. We also have a love triangle here. And that's between, you know, the police detective who's trying to catch the Avenger. He has seen Daisy at the time. And also with this mysterious lodger. So you've got, you've got that stuff going on. Pretty common. A lot of the older films that I've seen to have some kind of a love triangle going on. Now, in this love triangle, for myself personally, one of these men I kind of feel sympathy for and like. And the other one's kind of a jerk. I won't say which one is which, but... Anyway, while this doesn't have the same level as later films, we do see Hitchcock's thriller elements 
as well as, like I said, a little bit of horror when compared to films of the time, certainly. And he starts to cut his teeth, and you can see the suspense. So it's easy to see why he would call this his first true film. As I look at my last major note here on The Lodger, there's a scene at the near the end, and it's pretty laughable, especially by today's standards when you're watching. But I, I think it's pretty in line with what you'd see at the time for films. And I'm not going to go into this. It's hard to dance around the movie. But, I mean, that's essentially what you have. There's, there's not a ton of story here, but we do have, we're following, you know, who is the Avenger? That's the driving focus of this. Who is this guy killing these women? I think the story here is pretty incredible for the time. I mean, I'm not a huge silent film fan, as I've said before, but this one really did draw me in. I really enjoyed watching The Lodger, and I enjoyed a couple of the characters, and I think it was pretty well done. There's also a lot of times when people are talking, and you kind of have to infer what they're saying, which isn't a huge deal. I can see why people put this out there as a really important film, and someone, probably the first one by Hitchcock that people actually talk about in any you know, length. And that's not just because the other ones were pretty much lost. But The Lodger's a good film. Lodger's a really good film, and I like it. And if you can deal with the silent films, then I would absolutely recommend this to you. Now, is a horror fan going to get a whole lot out of this? Maybe not. But if you're coming in from a different lens and you're there to enjoy a cool film with some cool characters and a nice little drama with some thriller elements and an important film in history, then I say go for it. Absolutely. As you can hear, I'm probably not going to have a lot to say about the two films I'm covering tonight. It's just that they, I don't feel like there's a whole lot to them, and I don't want to give away any of the plot points as we go through. So, anyway, I would definitely recommend The Lodger. Getting back into it, um, after the film premiered, the press response was overwhelmingly positive, with some calling it the greatest British film ever made at that point. When the film released, it was a major success. Uh, this was the first, this was his first true domestic film, as his other two were viewed as foreign ones being shot in, you know, other countries in Europe. Hitchcock decided he wanted to create films that followed current events next. He wanted to create a movie about the general strike of the previous year in London, but was turned down immediately by the censors. And to that point, it was pretty much they don't want to touch on a subject that was still kind of stinging. It was a little too soon for them to go into something like that. So instead, Hitchcock pivoted to Downhill, which was his next film, and looked to build off the success of The Lodger. The film also starred Novello. Centered around a schoolboy who was wrongly accused of seducing a female employee. When it was known that Hitchcock would be directing Novello in a train station, a large crowd showed up to watch. This would be a very important scene in history, because Hitchcock would be filming Novello going down an escalator, which had not been done up to that point. This proved a little difficult, though, because it took Hitchcock five takes over four hours to get it right. Hitchcock held the camera during this still for 23 seconds, at the time, most directors would only hold it for five or six seconds. So you can see what kind of innovations Hitchcock's doing and the kind of 
cutting edge stuff that he's pioneering here. At one showing in London, in the middle of the showing, the lights and the screen went up, and Novello was standing on stage in full costume. He then acted out the next 10 minutes of the film. That's pretty cool. You, <laughs> that's something that most people alive wouldn't be able to experience anything like that, because those kind of theatrics are kind of out the window, but that's, that's dedication, and that's awesome. How great would that be to be that audience when he just shows up and starts acting out the rest of the movie? As he was still working on Downhill, Hitchcock began production on Easy Virtue. His cameraman for the movie became sick, and Hitchcock decided to take control of the camera himself. Yet again, Hitchcock stepping up and doing a role when someone else can't do it. In the film, a woman's past catches up to her when she marries a rich younger man. Now, Easy Virtue would be his last under Gainsborough Pictures. And remember, Gainsborough was the company that Balkan had come in with Graham Cuts and all them informed. John Maxwell would come in and persuade him to move to British International Pictures, which he had just founded under the premise of better facilities, more control, and a higher wage. How could you really turn that down? I mean, seriously. He would now receive £13,000 a year, which, remember, the lodger was made for £12,000. So... That kind of of tells you something there, that he's receiving the salary greater than the budget of his last movie. I mean, rightfully so. This was three times more than what he was making before. Who could really turn that down? This would lead him to become the highest paid director in all of England. John Maxwell and his studio was seen as more professional and would end up being a lot more commercial and commercially successful as well. And those are as compared to Gainsborough, which was kind of fly-by-night, flying-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type thing. Over the next five years, Hitchcock would direct ten films. Most of these would be theater or book adaptations that were more or less safe bets for the time. So, you know, low-risk, hopefully higher rewards. So, just safe bets that they'll make their money back, I'm sure. The exception being The Ring, which appeared to be an original film. This would be the first time a film would be credited as written and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And later on, he would refer to this as the second Alfred Hitchcock film. Hitch would also need a new cameraman and selected Jack Cox. He was a veteran of the industry and would stay on with Hitchcock for 11 years and work on 11 of his films. The last of which would be The Lady Vanishes, which we'll definitely get to as we move through this. It said that Cox was at least partially responsible for the Hitchcock look that would become a staple in his films. This is another example of Hitchcock kind of taking in his circle, using those around him, and getting a feel for what his style is going to be. So he couldn't have done it without Alma by his side, and of course all these other people who were helping him. The Ring is about two boxers who are fighting for the love of the same woman. So again, you've got a love triangle going on. The film was a success and was hailed as one of the best British films ever. Unfortunately, it didn't do so well at the box office. So here we are, and Hitchcock has had six films under his belt so far. And he's 28 years old. It's almost as if the media was painting Hitchcock as the savior of the British film industry. And if I haven't got into it, 
the British film industry was kind of looked down upon at the time. It was just not as well regarded as, of course, the American film industry or early on the German film industry. It was kind of seen as, you know, lesser films, and British filmmakers were seen as lesser filmmakers and and all that, for, for better or worse, you know, if it's, if, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's how it was viewed. So Hitchcock coming up, he was kind of revolutionizing the British film industry and bringing it to a new level. Next, he would move on to The Farmer's Wife, which was mainly a comedy about a farmer trying to find a new wife after his wife had died. Not really much more to say on that one. But I do have a note that in one of his famous practical jokes, Hitchcock set up a party to celebrate the end of filming on The Farmer's Wife. He invited 40 of the cast and crew and rented out a room meant for 12, and he also hired actors to serve as rude waiters. Now, this would not be the first or last time we would see practical jokes out of Hitchcock, as he was mainly did this a lot. He got a great enjoyment out of it. Some of his other jokes were to order, you know, large and awkward furniture to his friend's home while they were on vacation, having a horse sent to an actor's room instead of flowers on opening night, painting a clown faces on his sleeping daughter's face, and even down to the old standard whoopee cushion. So, Hitch is not above anything, but, man, I thought, uh, you know, a good pun was all the, the joking you needed, but he took it to a new level, so gotta commend him there. At the beginning of 1928, it was announced that Alma was pregnant. He would often say that he did it with a fountain pen. Again, going back to the, <laughs> the sexless marriage and the always kind of dodging the issue and shying away from it, and yeah. During this time, he also began to work on the film Champagne, wasn't anything great, but one interesting note is that the future director, Michael Powell, was a still photographer on the set. And that's Michael Powell who would go on to do Black Narcissus, as Dave Dr. Shock Becker would always point out, and also Peeping Tom, which is probably his most well-known film. Alma would go into labor at the end of production on Champagne, and their daughter Patricia Alma Hitchcock would be born on July 7, 1928. Pat, as she was more frequently known, would go on... I mean, she just passed away recently. It was last summer she passed away at the age of 93, so... She was still around to tell a lot of the stories of her father and mother at the time, which was a great source, I'm sure. This would be their only child, by the way. After Pat was born, they would move into a rural area. Alma claimed that the house had to be as neat and orderly as one of Hitch's films. There's a place for everything, and meals had to be on time. So very much, uh, Alfred wanted things a very particular way and wouldn't have it any other way. I talked a little bit about the perception of the British film industry. Well, now, new British films had gained a lot of steam at the point that they were much more desirable than they used to be. So much so that a new act designed to end the American monopoly on British films. This act would state that, by 1935, one-fifth of all British films should be made in England. This number would actually be hit in 1932, and there was even talk of a British Hollywood. Up next for Hitchcock would be The Manxman, and this would be another film that involved a love triangle. Now, I haven't watched The Manxman, 
as I was trying to focus for this section on, you know, thriller films as much as possible with Hitchcock. But it's said to be one of the best silent films in British history. I mean, that's saying something. Maybe I should watch this one. Anyway, The Manxman would release, and then after that, the silent era would really be coming to a close. Near the end of 1927, the jazz singer would be released and would usher in the era of the talkies, or, you know, films with audio and sound. After completing The Manxman, he was ready to move to sound with his next film, Blackmail. Now, he already had begun gun work on a silent version before the studio agreed to a sound version. Although Hitchcock was already planning on the sound version before it was approved, he intentionally designed the film so that sound could be added in later, which was very smart. The first reel of the film is actually silent, but the rest all contains sound. This was most likely done on purpose by Hitchcock as the film began as a traditional silent film until you start hearing the characters' voices come in slowly in the first, and they kind of grow. But a few problems with the sound did arise. It brought up a few new complications and different twists to the filmmaking process. Uh, the leading lady, Annie Andra, was of Czech descent and had a strong accent. To counteract this, she would move her mouth to say the lines, while a British woman spoke them aloud. The sound equipment was also cumbersome and took up a lot of room. The camera also had to be placed in a soundproof booth, so its cranking couldn't be heard. Even with all the issues, the film would be very successful. Now, the first British talkie, or film of sound, was The Clue of the New Pen, and... It's lost today, but back then, the ads for blackmail would read that it was the first feature-length movie with all sound made in Great Britain. So maybe there are some qualifiers there, but they were marketing this as the first film with sound, even though it may not have been. Now, blackmail is the other film that I'll be talking about. I want to set that one up as well. So it was released in 1929 and ran for 86 minutes. And the, it's funny, the tagline for this one is hold everything till you've heard this one. And heard being the key point there. London, 1929. Frank Weber, a very busy Scotland Yard detective, seems to be more interested in his work than in Alice White, his girlfriend. Feeling herself ignored, Alice agrees to go out with an elegant and well-mannered artist who invites her to visit his fancy apartment. In terms of this film, it's a pretty slight one. There's just not a whole lot that goes on in this movie. Basically, what you have is our leading lady, who, again, like the synopsis is saying, is dating Spectre at Scotland Yard, and he's really not wanting to do anything with her and not really wanting to pay any attention to her and kind of ignoring her. Well, she'll go out and she tries to seek attention from someone else, which turns out to be this artist, who invites her back to his place to see his art and all this other stuff. Well, that doesn't necessarily go as planned. Something happens during her visit to his home, and that is really the crux of the rest of the film. The action that occurs here drives everything, and there is blackmail involved, as the title would suggest. So, there's not too much I want to say as far as the plot, because there's just not a whole lot going on. Now, I will say I like this film. I do like it. It's nowhere near as good as 
the lodger, of course. But it's still a solid thriller. And I would say this is much more of a thriller and the suspense type stuff as we would see later on. I feel it has a nice pace to the beginning and kind of draws itself out. But by the time we get to the end, it's kind of a rush. And, you know, one thing happens after another and it's just kind of barreling towards a conclusion. And not necessarily a satisfying conclusion, depending on how you look at it. But, I mean, you you would see there's a scene later on here that would play out something more of like an action film type <laughs> type thing. But, yeah, Blackmail is an interesting film. As far as that, and I'm sorry I don't have a whole lot to say about these movies tonight. But there's really not a whole lot about them. I promise I will have a lot more to say about the movies on the next episode. But there's just not a whole lot to blackmail, and there's just not a whole lot to The Lodger. They're pretty simple films, but they're very effective films. And a lot of it comes from the techniques and the imagery and stuff that Hitchcock would use. And the characters, of course, who are good for the most part. The thing with this one that it gets criticized for, I think, is the acting. Now, our lead in this, again, we already talked, um, was overdubbed. So that can feel a little bit awkward when you're watching that part of it, sure. But anyone who's watched, you know, dubbed Italian films or Spanish films or anything else knows how that can go. But it's not a bad start for Hitchcock as far as sound goes. I think he had a pretty successful first step into it. So I would recommend this again. I'm mainly going to recommend this to cinephiles who like to dig back into the history of films and don't mind these like silent or early era films. And of course, for those who are Hitchcock completist. But Blackmail, I would think, is lesser known, even though I think I saw something where it was the 59th, rated like 59th on the list of best British films of all time, which, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's there, but the public screening would take place in the summer of 1929, and its first screening at the Regal, there was said to be almost continuous amounts of applause. And one of these bouts of applause was said to last for seven minutes straight. So it had a huge impact on the crowds of the time. And it kind of gets into just how influential and how big Hitchcock was and how much he must have felt to the you know, audiences of that time. And before we move on, because that's all, that's where I want to end the Hitchcock portion of this episode for today. Before we move on, I did want to mention, so a lot of these films we talked about, again, are lost, or pieces of them are lost, or we only have parts of them today. And there's actually a project going on by the BFI, the British Film Institute, and it's called Save or Rescue, I can't remember, The Hitchcock Nine. And that is an ongoing effort that's been going on for a while to try to rescue and restore whatever they can from the nine Hitchcock silent films. So that's a pretty cool movement. And how many movements do you hear of that are trying to rescue films like that? Like, you don't, you don't see that stuff. So that's just showing how important Hitchcock is and how, what a major figure he was, especially on the British film industry. You could argue the greatest British film director of all time. So that's an interesting little project. And I'm glad they're trying to get those films out. It's always great when we're trying to get, even though I'm you know, admittedly not a huge fan of the silent film, it's great when we're trying to preserve and 
rescue films that people haven't been able to see and maybe only have heard about. Which, if you'll permit me, I think this is going to lead me on a little bit of a rant here that I've been kind of stewing over back and forth for a couple weeks here. It's been recently in my mind. And that is just the preservation of films and especially the cult horror films. We have, luckily, we have plenty of great labels out there that are dredging up the cult and the, you know, oddities and all of that stuff out there. The problem becomes it's just so hard to see these movies, I guess, before purchasing them. And, you know, I was going back and forth with friend of the show, Dave Dr. Shock Becker, just this week, and we were talking about how it's just, streaming is just so, it's not reliable at all. I mean, yes, we have great things that have come from streaming, and we get all of these great movies that have come about that wouldn't necessarily come around before. And they're pouring more and more money into these things as the years go on, especially after 2020 happened and they realized, hey, we need all the content we can get because the getting's good. But with that comes a lot of risk, and I want to talk about a couple different scenarios here. First of all, earnings had just come out, and Netflix stock is tanking right now because of their earnings. And it's basically, you know, what my finance professor, shout out to Christian Ola, I'm sure you're not listening, but had always told me was, I don't understand how Netflix is sustainable. And that was back in 2011, 2010, 2011. So they've sustained this long, but they are pumping billions of dollars into new content every year. And a lot of the times that content goes unwatched and subscriber accounts are down. You know, everything's kind of on the fall for Netflix. And that's just a sign of, you know, you never can trust what's going to happen. Because Netflix is about as sure as bet as you can get when it's when we're going into streaming services. You know, it's been around pretty much the longest of anything. And now it's getting all this competition. I think the biggest hitter is HBO Max. And not necessarily in their original content, especially for horror. But I mean, they're picking up some pretty cool movies not too long after they exit the theater. And, you know, they have their own 45-day window as well for Warner Brothers-related films. So, while Netflix seems like this permanent thing that never goes away, and it might never, we don't know, you know, what happens to all that content if Netflix were to go under, anything were to happen to them? There are a lot of great movies and series that have never received any kind of release, and it's just a... um slippery slope it's it's kind of on shaky ground like something happens there do we just lose everything i know these days it seems like people more and more of these streaming services are popping up and then they're kind of pulling their stuff from netflix you look at something like disney or you know you've even seen shows from other streaming services kind of fall off of netflix and go elsewhere but i digress on that The other point is VOD is just, (laughs) it's just a wild west. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that you would never get. And we get a lot of straight to VOD stuff, which honestly, some of it is better quality than the stuff we were getting direct to video. 
of course, but you just it's just a mixed bag. But when I'm talking about wanting to watch specific films, and I run into this a lot, especially trying to check out some of these international films, or even something here, something as prominent as Red State, you know, Kevin Smith's Red State, I can't find that anywhere. And my best option to watch that thing is to buy like a $30 DVD. And yeah, I haven't seen the movie because I don't have access to it at all. And the same is true for, and this is recently, and you'll hear me talk about this film on an upcoming bonus episode, just teasing that out there. But the film Rot, or R-A-A-T is how it's spelled. It's an Indian film from the early 90s, and that movie is nowhere to be found either. It's just not out there. And I ended up having to buy like a $25 used copy on Amazon. So it comes up all the time, especially when I was doing my Spanish horror episode. I mean, there were things like Satan's Blood and Inquisition. And even earlier than that, when I wanted to watch a movie called Don't Deliver Us From Evil, which is a French movie, they're hard to find. You can't find them online. You can't rent them anywhere. You can't stream them anywhere. So you're left to buy the releases, which I am thankful that they do put out these releases for these cult films that we would otherwise never get to see. And then you've got further issues with if it's not available anywhere and your only option is to buy this thing. And sometimes you don't even have the option to buy it. Sometimes it's out of print. So what's your next option? Well, you might watch it through nefarious means. Well, that's not really an option with a lot of these international movies. Even sometimes when they're on YouTube, they don't have English subtitles. So you would have to watch the film without any subtitles of any kind. And that's just not the way I want to experience a movie. So basically what you have to do is buy these things sight unseen. Luckily so far I've had a pretty good track record with that. And that could be due to the fact that I bought this thing, now I have to like it. I don't know. It's been pretty cool so far. But it's still that thing of you have to buy this without seeing it first. And it's it's a shaky process, you know? But I, I can give you an example of one, and that is a Jess Franco film called She Killed in Ecstasy. And I still want to see this. I'll still give it a chance one way or another. But there is a release by Severin Films. and. They do a good job of digging up stuff too. But that's like $26, $27. So I would have to buy that from a director who I mixed on, for sure, to say the least. I would have to buy something sight unseen because it is in a different language and you can't really find any kind of version online that would satisfy you. So wanted to just get into that a little bit. Um, I know it's not easy for everyone to collect physical media for sure. It's not cheap. It definitely, and you can get addicted to doing it, especially buying these better releases from places like Arrow or Severin or Synapse or Vinegar Syndrome, uh, Mono Macabro, Kino, I could go on and on, Blue Underground, and Criterion, of course. Oh, it's Scream Factory. Cannot leave out Scream Factory. But the thing is, it's just, it's just a peace of mind that you always have this movie. There's been several movies that I've went to watch again. And I'm like, oh, I don't have this. I'm going to have to spend money to rent this again, or I'm going to have to buy it. And even if you're not going out there and buying the newest stuff or anything like that, I mean, there's always going to be sales. 
You can always check a website called Deep Discount, who a lot of times will have some good deals running on movies. You can always check your local thrift stores or your Dollar Trees or your Dollar Generals or wherever you want to try. I'd say Big Lots has some good deals on movies. If you've never checked there before, there's just so many different ways to get into. And I know everyone doesn't have the space either, but I really do hope that physical media stays alive because as I was talking to Dave Becker, I mean, if they get rid of physical media, if we're not having physical disc and case and everything like that anymore, I'm just not going to be buying movies. I'll rent them for sure. I'm not going to stop watching movies, but I'm definitely going to stop. I'm never going to get into a game with digital movies. And that's another thing is with the digital movies, they can change. One specific example I'm thinking of is Deadpool 2, which there was a scene in that where the song was changed in a scene and the scene was kind of switched up a little. And the only way to watch the original theatrical version, or at least to my knowledge, maybe it's changed by now, was to have the Blu-ray or the DVD, the original one. Because they went on in digital platforms and they just changed that thing and you can't get the original now. So, anyway, so that's my little rant. Thank you guys for entertaining that little offshoot there. But I've just been thinking a lot about that and the, the future of movies and how we preserve them. And right now, the best film preservation efforts are coming from these labels, these uh, genre and cult labels. So support them if you can. If not, you know, go to Big Lots, go to the Dollar Tree and support that way too. Sure, I'll buy some nice collector sets. I'm definitely not above going to Dollar Tree or Family Dollar or any of those because you get some good deals. But rant over. But let me know what you guys think about physical media, what your thoughts are on that. Are you a collector? Anything like that. Hit me up and let me know. With that out of the way, let's get back to business and conclude the show with this month's watch list roulette. And I've been, if you're not familiar, if it's first time listening, this is where once a month, so about every other episode, I will go in and ask someone from the community or, you know, some people have reached out to me in the past. We'll ask them to pick a number between 1 and 10 and I will go to one of my random watch lists and sort it alphabetically, and I will pick that number. So, it's worked out decently so far, I would say. I don't, I haven't really got a bad one. But, so this time, I got a message from Bill Van Vegel from Land of the Creeps, and, you know, Bill tried to be funny. Bill's a funny guy, and he picked 11. You know, he tried to, tried to make a Spinal Tap reference there and turn my watch list up to 11. Well, joke's on him, because I just went with it anyway. And, I was thinking since I am doing these silent films and these older films right now in this episode that I would go to my movies of the 2020s that I need to watch, horror movies of the 2020s specifically. So I went to that list, sorted it, and I picked the 11th one down. And funny enough, Bill Van Begel, who is known for promoting Tubi TV and watches a lot of movies on Tubi, this was a movie that I watched on Tubi. It was free on Tubi, Um, (laughs) so that's where I watched it. And that was very fitting. And that is from 2020, and it is Death of a Vlogger, which is kind of a mockumentary. It's not necessarily found footage, but a mockumentary. And if anyone knows me, they know that I absolutely love found footage. So I was happy to have landed on this one. Now, this is directed by Graham Hughes, comes in at 88 minutes long. And the synopsis reads, 
An ambitious vlogger experiences the dark side of the internet when his latest video, which featured an alleged haunting, goes viral. That's a simple enough uh, synopsis there. But with Death of a Vlogger, it's mixed. It's a mixed bag, really, what you get. And I think this film just has so much potential, and it just kind of squanders it. To outline that, what we have basically is a guy who's making YouTube videos trying to get big, and we've seen plenty of those movies recently, many to better effect than this. I just watched one called We're All Going to the World's Fair, which uh, maybe not as good as this one, but we've seen plenty of these by now. Now, this is not directly like all video footage. It is more of a mockumentary, like I said. And this guy is basically recording himself after he's had some kind of a surgery and uh, something paranormal happens in the video. And honestly, that opening there is pretty chilling. Um, it did send a little tingle down my spine, gave me a little bit of goosebumps. And it's not often that movies do that, especially anymore since I've watched so many. So for it to start like that, and then to ultimately go in the direction it went, was a little disappointing. I'm not going to say which direction it does go, or give anything more away on that. I would just say, you know, this film has a lot of cool and creepy moments, and I think the concept of it is pretty cool. And it's not a spoiler to say that something creepy happens on his live stream at the beginning, and like the synopsis said, it does go viral, and they call in help from a so-called kind of expert. And I think that's really cool. The way it went with it, I wasn't a huge fan of. But I do like this kind of conspiracy angle that they have going through. And I like the different players that come in. I just think at some points, there are moments that are supposed to be creepy and supposed to scare or frighten or unsettle you. And they just come off as kind of laughable. Maybe not everyone feels that way, but I think the conclusion especially is very weird and not really to the point I would have wanted. I just think this film could have been pretty special in the end. What we get is this solid mockumentary type found footage film, and I mean, we have plenty of those, but I'm always going to come up more favorably on these type of films than I will other movies. I just have a soft spot for them. But it's just a lot of wasted potential to me. Again, I don't want to discourage that. I don't want to go out on negatives because there are so many cool moments and cool aspects of this film and the way they take it. Again, with the conspiracy, with calling in these experts, with having these set of videos. And you know, you've got, while, while you have the, you have several different angles coming from this. You know, you have the videos themselves that are being recorded. Then you have, you know, someone else recording like conversations they're having about these videos, and then you've got another aspect which are interviewing people because, you know, something bad happens to the main character, and that kind of blows up and everyone's kind of talking about it, so I'm sure that was the point of that. But, yeah, I would say for any found footage or mockumentary fans like myself, this is probably a must-see. I'm not going to say it's one of the best. I mean, if I was to put together a top 25, this probably wouldn't be on it, or it would be near the bottom. But you know, if you're a found footage fan, that you're always wanting more, and you're probably pretty lenient like myself on these movies. For normal horror fans, I'd say this is worth a watch for sure. Maybe not a high recommendation, but I think there's a lot to enjoy from it. So that is it for 
this first episode. Be sure to come back next time when we're going to be continuing the life and career of Alfred Hitchcock and talk about a few more movies. I think we're going to switch it up a little and take on three movies next time. And that's mainly because these ones are back-to-back-to-back for the most part. And that is The Man Who Knew Too Much from 34, The 39 Steps from 35, and Sabotage from 36. And those are his next three major thriller films. So um, there's a little bit of a gap from where we ended with Blackmail 2 to get to The Man Who Knew Too Much. But I think it'll flow better and we'll give you more content on there if we have all three of those. So... As always, let me know what you guys think. You can interact with the show on Twitter and follow me at Screaming Ages. Also have a Facebook group, Screaming Through the Ages, over there. And you can send the show an email at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com if you so or if you're so inclined. I always appreciate you subscribing to the podcast service of your choice, where you can get notified of every episode. And just a little bit of housekeeping before we go today. Between the time this episode drops and the hopeful release of my next episode, my wife will have given birth to a baby, so I don't know what kind of impacts that's going to have on the schedule, so I will keep you updated, but if you don't see a release pop out in two weeks' time, then you know something went wrong, either, you know, the It's Alive baby popped out of my wife and I'm now dead, or uh, we're just getting adjusted and trying to get the new episode out. So bear with me there. But with that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.